This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, the Google Play Store, or on the Podbean app. You can find more Thanks for Sharing at www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash healingpaths. That's path with an S. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm John T. And I'm Jackie P. Um, this, I think, is our last episode of this year. No, no, no next week. Next week. Next week is our last episode of this year. So um, we're we're really excited for our guest today. Um, we have Alex Reynoldson on the show today. He is a therapist that we know in Salt Lake, so he's one of our one of our neighbors. Um, and uh, Alex has he does a lot of work with uh, trauma, with grief and loss, with depression, anxiety. And he does some addiction work as well. Um, this is it. This last year, Alex, you've been doing a lot of training in like somatic therapies and mindfulness and EMDR. Yeah, this this past year I've really been uh, focused on just becoming more and more of a of an expert in the trauma world. So doing a lot more EMDR trainings, doing a lot more somatic uh, therapy trainings, and things like that. Traveling the country to to learn from uh, leaders in the field. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. Um, so we've we've brought Alex on the show to talk about what's what's really on everybody's mind around the holidays, which is grief and trauma. Um, which I, I think underlies a lot of those difficult family interactions. So welcome today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. So um, Alex, you, you sent a bio over, um, which I'm going to put in the show notes because um, this tells a little bit of Alex's bio, but I'm going to start today um, just with your first paragraph in your bio. It says, I started Bloom Recovery after experiencing my own traumas and struggling to find a truly helpful and safe environment to heal. Um, Maybe, maybe let's start with that part of the story. What got you looking at grief and trauma? Uh, yeah, so, um, you know, I've, I've always wanted to be a, a therapist or work in psychology in, in some form or fashion ever since, ever since high school, really. Um, but, you know, that's such a broad field, such a broad sort of area. You know, everything from, you know, you could do uh, forensic psychology, you can do research, you can be private practice owner, all sorts of things. And it wasn't really until um, my parents died that I was really searching for a, a therapist or a support group that would, would really get it. And everywhere I went, it just wasn't, it just didn't feel right. You know, I would go and I would tell uh, a therapist my, my story and my grief and things like that. And they would, the, the most typical response, I went to, I went to a lot, I probably went to uh, at least 10 different therapists. Um, and the most common response was sort of this look of, of terror in their eyes of like, Oh God, I can't handle that. <laughs> and, and that would obviously make me go like, Oh, really? It's that bad. <laughs> like, oh, well, okay. well, well, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and, uh, or it would be, you know, I remember signing up for, uh, a grief group and, it was one of the few ones I could find. And when I went, uh, I pulled in and everything was dark. And so I walk in, I'm like, am I even in the right place? But the sign on the door was accurate and everything. And I'm looking around, I'm like, there's like nobody here, this is weird. And I find a janitor uh, and he's like emptying out the trash and everything. I'm like, excuse me, you know, and I'm looking for this grief group. I'm looking for this specific therapist. Am I in the right place? And he's like, 
oh, yeah, she closed up shop. She moved to Mexico. Oh, I'm like, my. What? <laughs> like, thanks for letting me know. Right. You know? <laughs> and so um, after searching and searching and searching, I just couldn't find what I was really looking for and what I really needed. You know, I, I just wanted a, a safe space to, you know, work through my stuff and be able mm-hmm. to express myself in, in any way that I feel comfortable. And it was just hard to find that. And so that really pushed me to be like, you know what, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get my master's. I'm going to create what I feel is lacking in the community. What I feel mm-hmm. a lot of people need. Cause I can't be the only one that's experiencing this. Yeah. And so um, that's when I went back to school and, you know, I, I uh, in uh, my undergrad, I started, I studied neuroscience and uh, psychology. So I already had a pretty good foundation of sort of how the brain works and things like that. But then to dive into the trauma world and the neurology behind it and what happens to the brain and our nervous system when we experience trauma and how to basically calm the brain down after trauma, like that's when my world just sort of blew up. And I was like, oh man, this is so freaking cool to, to sort of go through that. So what would you say, based on both your personal experience and your professional experience, what do you think it is that people with grief, people with trauma are needing and are looking for? The, the number one thing, without a doubt, is a feeling of safety. They want to have some sort of safe space to, to dive into some really dark territories. And I feel like even though it's really scary at times, Mm-hmm. I feel it's it's part of our it's part of our DNA to dive into grief, to dive into our traumas, and to mm-hmm. explore it. It can be really terrifying, but there's a part of us that knows that's the healthiest route. And so, mm-hmm. people people want to tell their story. They want to go through the emotions. They want to go through the process, but they need a safe space to do that. And that's definitely what I felt was was lacking everywhere I went. I either got that sort of deer in a headlights look that definitely did not make me feel safe or I got, you know, people not being professional or, you know, whatever. And so definitely just that, that feeling of I can come here and I can be my raw authentic self, whatever that may look like. I can come in here and I can ball my eyes out. I can come in here and I can yell and scream. I can come in here and just not say anything for a long time. I can come in here and just sort of sit with these feelings and not be judged not be, you know, looked at as, you know, a freak or anything like that, but just come in as I am. I think that's the number one thing above anything else, above any theory, above any modality, above anything. Without that foundation of safety, we can't do what we really need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that story around showing up to the grief group, I think that's so, um, that's so instructive of, I think, how a lot of us experience our, our social supports response to grief is like for everything else, the shop's open for you. But when you show up for grief, I've moved, you mm-hmm. can't, you can't find me. And I think that's one of the things that can be so isolating is um, we, we don't do a lot of, even outside of like societally, we don't do a lot of training in how to hold grief, how to hold loss. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm wondering what are some of the ways you've seen, it being effective in finding that community or building that community? What are some of the key ingredients? In, in building the, the community or? Yeah. If so, so on, on your end, your story was this didn't exist and I 
I needed to work on building it, making it more accessible. What, what exactly are the things that you're building and what do people find when they, when they come to you with help for grief and trauma? Um, well, you know, it's, it's sort of, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. <laughs> um, they, but the community's already out there, right? There's people grieving every single day. There's, and I, when, I, when I talk about grief, I'm not only talking about a literal death, but it could be, you know, somebody's lost their job or they have to move or they got a divorce or, you know, any number of, of losses can follow that same grief, uh, you know, cycle. But what they really uh, find when they come to me is the, the, the number one feedback I get is basically that I approach therapy differently from, from other places. You know, they either, uh, I'll get people who are like, you know, I've seen three or four other therapists and then they come and talk to me and they're like, you're, you're different. And it's because I have this, this balance of, obviously I want to stay professional. I want to stay, stay real. I want to give the, my clients the, the best value I possibly can. But at the same time, I am very laid back. I'm, uh, I use humor a lot. I find humor to be incredibly healing when, when used properly, you know, and there's mm -hmm. a fine line between humor as a deflection and humor as a healing tool. Mm -hmm. um, I, I use the, the client's language. So if they come in swearing up a storm and, you know, they, they're that angry about things, I will follow them with mm -hmm. that. You know, it's in, in my office, there's, no taboos. There's, there's nothing that they can say or that they can do that, that will make me go or like, Hey, don't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, because that's what they need. We all need our own specific process. And so mm -hmm. I think that's the, the most valuable thing is just being able to combine professionalism with my own personal twist and style of, you know, geek culture and adventure mm -hmm. and, um, you know, just open-mindedness. Yeah, I, I think that's something that is really starting to be, um, I think, more known in grief work is we, we used to, the, the first foray of of the the psycho psychological clinical community into grief work was a really Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who had these very set stages of grief. And this is what it looks like. And I think that was a fantastic starting place and validated a lot of people. But as we continue to learn more about it, we, we realize that grief looks very, very different um, for everybody. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that we are missing the most here in, in our culture in, in Utah is specific community rituals, you know, mm -hmm. and in, in other cultures, it's, you know, people will will dance and sing and wail and mourn for three days. Other mm -hmm. cultures, they will wear black for a solid year uh, when someone dies. And in other cultures, the, the Jewish culture, they, they cover up mirrors to, you know, uh, have that be symbolic in fact of like, focus on your grief, don't focus on anything else. Mm -hmm. And in, in our culture, unfortunately, we, we have a very stoic approach to it where it's like, you know, don't show that you're struggling. Don't, uh, don't cry about it, bottle it up. Um, if somebody does ask, just say that you're fine. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and we, we don't have really powerful rituals or really powerful communities to come and just be like, Hey, I'm struggling. You're struggling. Let's get through this together. Let's mm -hmm. show each other empathy and support so that we can, uh, ideally, you know, tell awesome stories about our, our grief and be like, Hey, I remember, uh, you know, this amazing story about my grandfather and I wanted to share it with you guys because I want you to know what kind of awesome person he was or, 
you know, whatever it may be. But I think that's probably the biggest thing that we're missing in our modern culture is just that, that ritual and that really strong community support that needs to be there. Yeah. I remember my mom unexpectedly passed away. Uh, it's a, four years ago this month. And uh, I remember, you know, there was this like two week period, right? Where I could say my mom died and people were just like, we expect nothing from you. Like, right. It was just this, like I could play that card and I didn't really feel like I was high functioning. Right. And so I could just be like, uh, my mom died and people would just respond appropriately. Right. But like I said, it was maybe like a two week period and then it was like over. Right. And yet like six months later, I'm like, I want to say like, sorry, my mom died. I, I can't come to work today. Right. Mm -hmm. But people would be like, well, when did she die? Six months ago. And why can't you come to work? Right. There was just this feeling of yeah. like that time had passed. And even though I may still be mourning and grief may still unexpectedly visit me, I had to be fine. Like you said, I had to be fine. I had to function. I had to like the time for grief had now passed. Absolutely. I, I had a similar experience where I was grocery shopping and I looked around and everybody was going on with their, their normal lives. And for me, it took all my energy to just overcome my grief to go grocery shopping. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I looked around and I just got pissed. I was like, how dare the world continue on as if everything is normal. Mm -hmm. Everything is not normal. My world is still shattered, even though it'd been, you know, months. And yeah. I, was, I was pissed. And it's because I felt so disconnected from anybody that could show me, you know, that it's okay to still be in that realm, even though months have, have passed. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I'm curious, you had talked about Alex's, uh, how humor can be a deflection. And then you talked about rituals that are helpful. And I wonder if in your experience, if you've seen or, or could maybe speak to how we might use ritual as a deflection of grief as well, like ways that we kind of distance ourselves from actually doing the grief. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that can be a lot of things, you know, anything that is not fully addressing the, the emotional side of grief mm -hmm. is, is a de deflection. You know, when I talk about rituals and uh, it's, it's a specific act or a specific gathering that's solely dedicated to experiencing emotion behind the grief. Mm -hmm. So you know, uh, a lot of things could be like, I, I come home and I plop down on the couch and I binge watch Netflix. You mm -hmm. know, that's, that could be, you know, just, I'm, I don't want to feel my, my grief. I want to distract myself from it. I want to numb myself out. So anything that, that numbs, anything that distracts us from what's actually going on, anything that takes us away from the present moment is definitely a, a, a distraction and can be, um, you know, pointing us in the wrong direction of where we need to go with our grief. Anything that, and I like to tell, tell clients, you know, they're like, oh, I just, I, I bury it or I follow it up and things like um, have you ever buried something and left it there for a couple weeks and then dug it back up? And does it look better after you've dug it back up? <laughs> and they're like, no, it doesn't. It looks way worse. I'm like, yeah, same thing here. You know, the longer you keep it buried, the worse it's going to get because that's just how things work, you know? So yeah. uh, it may feel comfortable in the moment to, to bury that stuff, but once you have to dig it back up, it is going to be festering and rotting way worse than if you were to just face it head on. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, a, a few years ago, my wife uh, had a cousin who died from a combination of a drug overdose and severe depression. And, oh. um, you know, the, the, the family would say, we're not quite sure. We, we think he was in a good place and he just, he just used too much. And um, I went to the funeral services. I didn't, I didn't even know this person. I hadn't, I hadn't met him, but I knew her family and went there. And it was, it was interesting as I was sitting there listening to how knowing, knowing the circumstances behind his death and then listening to the funeral, it seemed like they were telling two really different stories. Um, mm-hmm. Even the parts of his life that they highlighted. And I remember leaving feeling really mad, not because I knew this guy and I felt like injustice was done to him, but because I was like, there's, there's real sadness here around why he died. Um, there's real sadness around here, um, around his life. And I think sometimes that like, let's just focus on the celebration and just the good things. I think sometimes that can come premature, um, or without the balance of, and it also is really heavy and it also is really sad. Um, I I wonder if you've experienced a, a, a tendency in the folks that you work with to, to either move to one side or the other, like this is the most terrible thing that ever happened and things will never be good again. Or I just have happy memories and I'm glad for them and it's, it's good. We, each person has their, their own way of going, going about it. And so I mainly uh, focus on, again, just being fully honest, fully present in, in the moment and being authentic with the moment. If I have a client who's trying to tell me how awesome this person was, but they're, and I, I haven't paid attention to their, their body a lot, a lot of somatic stuff. And so if they're telling me how, how great the person that they've lost uh, was and these amazing stories, but the entire time they're crying or the entire time they're full of muscle tension, they're speaking through clenched teeth and things like that, then I, I point that out. And I point out that, that incongruency, you know, mm-hmm. if somebody comes in and they're like, so yeah, I want to tell you about, you know, my grandmother and how amazing she was and oh, how I miss her, her lovely cooking. And it just brings a smile to their face. And they're just like, I really love her and I really miss her, but I'm just surrounded with this warmth and this love. Um, then I know that they're, they're being authentic and they're being real with their emotions. But so many times I think people want to focus on those good things, like you said, a little prematurely because that's uh, sociologically our culture is like, you know, be positive, be happy, you know, get over it. And that's sort of how we've been conditioned. It's like, let's just focus on these, these good things, but. Yeah. Or don't speak ill of the dead. Right. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden maybe the complicatedness around the relationship just doesn't get spoken to. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, uh, we, we forget that anger is a big part of the, of the process. Right. Mm -hmm. And to, to admit that you're angry at the person for dying, you know, people will, will take a step back and be like, that's a weird statement to say. And it's like, no, I'm pissed. They left. They like, I feel so alone now, you know, that's knowledge and honor. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say what, um, I, I have two cousins that I would count as like some of my closest friends growing up. And um, when I was eight, I think my oldest cousin, he was maybe five. Um, their dad uh, killed himself. And the, the spoken strategy in the family was we aren't going to talk about this except in flowery terms, because that will be best for these kids. And um, 
So if I ever did talk to these cousins about what I remembered about their dad or memories there, um, it was very, and there, there were a lot of good memories for sure, but it was very like tenuous and kind of go there lightly. And just in the last three months, um, I've really reconnected with both of them um, kind of in a deeper way. And it surprised me as we were eating dinner together, how freely they talked about confusion that they had in the past and still have around it. Um, mm-hmm. Things that they learned about their dad and things that they learned about their mom and, and their relationship together that actually brought them some peace and, and brought them some understanding. Um, and so, you know, Jackie, you had said, um, we don't speak ill of the dead. I think sometimes we just say we don't speak of the dead mm-hmm. at all. And that's what's going to be best too. And um, it really struck me to hear from them actually how healing it was for them to dive into that story and learn it from all facets. And I would, I would say there are some of my only cousins that can say, we have a really screwed up family. Like mm-hmm. we, we have a history and we need to talk about that. And it shocked me coming from them because my whole, my whole concept growing up was like, they're, they're really fragile and they're going to need us to protect them. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's a fine line between, you know, and again, there's, there's no right or wrong of, of how to grieve and, you know, how to go, go about it. But I've also found so many times people will look at how a person died and, you know, suicide being a big one, um, uh, an overdose of some kind being, being a big one. And they'll look at it as this massive tragedy that taints the rest of their life. Obviously, it is tragic, but so many times that's exactly what we'll, we'll, people will hone in on and they will stay there for, for a while. And mm-hmm. so acknowledging like, yes, this is, this is tragic, but this doesn't define my relationship with, with this person. It doesn't define who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents... Uh, died by suicide. Uh, both of them, it was, a, it was a double suicide on Christmas. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things where so many people were like, just, just devastated. And obviously I was too. But it was also I, I tried really hard to be like, look, this is a nasty, black, oozing oil pit at the end of their life. The rest of their life was pretty freaking amazing, mm-hmm. even though it also is scattered with nasty bits but mm-hmm. i could choose to remember them based on this last you know little bit of their life that was very dark and very very uh, miserable or i can go yes that's how it ended and it sucks and it's painful and at the same time like you said we have to recognize that balance mm-hmm. uh, they were exciting adventurous fun loving generous uh honest people and you know i have to play that balance in my head. How old were you when they died? Uh, 25. Okay. I, I wonder, you said a little earlier, Alex, and you talked a little bit about this, um, about getting to a point where you can tell the good stories. W- would you be willing to talk a little bit about what that, that experience was like for you when you could start to kind of incorporate the whole picture? Uh, yeah, it's, it's muddled, <laughs> to, to be honest. Um, the, the first time I, I realized it was actually at their, their wake. We didn't have a traditional funeral. We wanted to do more of a celebration of life kind of thing. So we had uh, a full-blown party and people were, you know, dancing and everything. And it was, it was really cool. And 
Um, my two sisters and I each got up and did a, a short little short little speech, not quite a, a eulogy, but just sort of a message to the crowd and everything. And as I was listening to, to my sisters and as I was talking to other people who were there, I realized, you know, this celebration of life is really where I want to go with, with my grief. Mm-hmm. And so that, I got up and I said, you know, my parents were huge travelers and very adventurous and very generous. And if you take any message away from tonight's event, don't take away how they died, but take away how they lived and try to honor them with doing something that they would love to do. And, you know, it was at that moment that I'm like, you know, my, my parents would have really wanted me to do at, at that time in my life, I wasn't really doing much with my life, to be honest. I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't uh, going to grad school or anything like that. I hadn't really thought of it. And it was at that moment that I'm like, you know, this is, this is sort of the direction I, I want to go. My parents want me to do something with my life. They want me to live my life. And so I'm going to use their life as inspiration. I'm going to do something that will make them proud mm-hmm. of me. I knew they were proud of me during life, but to continue to honor them would be huge. Mm-hmm. And then the very next day, I'm like, no, they suck. I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's uh, one of the things that grief kind of compels us to do, although, as you mentioned, it can be a really muddled process, right? But it, it is this, how do I bring meaning or purpose out of the suffering Mm-hmm. that I experienced from the grief. I'm wondering if we could talk for a minute, because as we talked about, like not all grief is death related, right? And I think with the holidays, sometimes it brings up this difficulty of the people are actually still alive and I'm grieving what I will not have or what we can't have or what is. Oh, and I think, I think that type of grief where someone hasn't actually died uh-huh. um, is is in a lot of ways harder you know because we have this you know just down to biologically we understanding we we understand death right we understand they're dead they're not coming back we can go through the process and move on but when somebody is still alive there's that little little flicker of a flame or massive inferno of of hope that's still there like you know we can we can fix this or we can we can rekindle this and we can move on. And, you know, maybe sometimes that's, that's completely accurate and just takes, you know, energy and, you know, dedication to do that. And sometimes that, that flicker of, of hope is, you know, a little deceitful. I, I mm-hmm. picture it being one of those little angler fish that have the little glowy bit at mm-hmm. the end of their, of their mouth. And then it's like, oh, like, look at that. It looks so nice. Let's head towards that just to be swallowed up and eaten all over again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it can be really, really, really painful to acknowledge like, you know what, that hope that I have, I need to let that go. Cause that just is not, it's not going in that direction. It can't go in that direction yeah. for whatever reason. And that can be letting go of hope. Uh, you know, in our industry, we talk about hope a lot and it's our job to sort of instill hope and let people know, Hey, this, does get better but sometimes it's you know hope's not going to serve you right now you have to let go of that and find a different hope and find a different direction with that Um, that can be confusing to say the least well I, i just got this visual we we talk a lot about extremes and i recently listened to a story of this guy in australia who um forever wanted to fly and he had some kind of like he was too tall for a cockpit or his vision was too bad for or something like that 
but he never let go of that dream. And he, he went to an army surplus store and bought a bunch of weather balloons and he, he fastened them to a lawn chair and he had a BB gun. And I think there was like 14 weather balloons that they filled with helium. And, um, you know, so it's this upward lifting. And I'm sure that his, his expectation was that he was going to hover a hundred or so feet off the ground. Well, he went up to 1600 feet very fast and soon realized that uh, the wind was picking up and that um, to, he, he started shooting balloons and he realized it got to a point where when he shoots the next balloon, there's not this balance anymore and he would definitely start falling. And so he's, he's floating around um, like, and he finally gets tangled in a power line and they, they rescue him from there and promptly, <laughs> promptly arrest him. Um, and it, like hope reminds me of those blue balloons, like buoyancy and lift is a good thing. Um, but sometimes if that's all we're holding on to, um, th- there's not, there's not grounding, there's not solidity under our feet. And I really identify with that. Like sometimes we have to let go of the hope. I find that's how I cope with the grief I have going on with the people who are still living is I really, I really have to take the relationship as it is right now and not try to think of what it could be or what it wasn't. Um, so there's, there's no hope and no regret. Like it really just has mm-hmm. to be, this is what I'm experiencing with this person today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find especially around holiday stuff, um, it allows me to be a lot more present and allows me to have more of the experience that I'm wanting to have versus getting wrapped up in this will it or won't it place. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the very first step of the actual grieving process, right? It's not the, it's not the divorce or it's not the, you know, separation or anything like that. It's the acknowledgement of, okay, I have to let go of my attachment to this. Mm -hmm. I have to, I think that's the very first step. Everything else is just, you know, sort of circumstantial situational preparing us for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can be, it can be so hard, so painful to shoot those, those balloons, right. And go like, if I shoot those, I'm crashing. And I don't want to do that, (laughs) you know? Uh, So I think that's a, that's a great analogy. Yeah, I think it's one of those, you know, when we, as we talk about Christmas or Hanukkah or really any of these um, sentimental holidays that we come up throughout the year, there's this wanting to get to this place of love and openness. And I think it's really important to stay grounded to the reality, right? Because sometimes we have this, like, this is what I want to create with this family or with this marriage. And yet the reality is that's not going to happen. And so the, the grief and the loss is even more intense because we aren't rooted in reality. We're, we're kind of in this fantasy of what it can be. And I think the lack of um, acknowledging or allowing ourselves to feel the grief oftentimes can mean that we stay in a marriage too long, right? It means that we delay uh, moving through maybe the dark times or moving through the difficulty and then coming out and creating then what we needed, right. Or getting into relationships where that can be more close to what we are desiring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's spot on, you know, and it's, um, it's hard to, to find that, that balance. I, one of the, 
one of the things I try to remind clients on a regular basis is we don't live in a world of either or, you know, we live in a world of both and, mm-hmm. you know, you can go through your holiday season with love and compassion and be spreading that and have a family that does not receive it well or has a family mm-hmm. that does not reciprocate. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean you can't be doing that yourself, right? It's right. a, a man situation. And again, that reality can be, can be painful because you know, I've had so many people come in and they're like, yeah, like I try to be this nice person. I try to be kind and loving and compassionate. But then, you know, my mother is just so mean and awful to me. And she's just so narcissistic. And she just belittles me all the time. And it's like, yes, that's, that's accurate. You know, like, <laughs> right. You know, it's truth. Yeah, it's and that sucks to have that both and like you are trying to be loving, caring, compassionate, supportive. And at the same time, you have a parental figure that is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the grief recovery handbook. Um, but that's something that Jackie introduced me to earlier this year. And we did some work with a group out of it. And the big thing that keeps sticking in my head is um, they, they encourage you to look at um, the high points and the low points, like on the same timeline. Mm-hmm. And they say something like, nobody is all good or nobody's all bad. And that's really part of how grief gets moving is we have to hold the complexity of the relationship or the complexity of the situation um, rather than trying to make it all one or the other. Right. You know, it's, it's, and that's a, it's a definitely walking that tightrope of, of grief, right? That balancing act. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be complicated and it can be scary. And, you know, I'm, I'm honored that I'm able to, to sit with people and, and help them do that tightrope uh, because I'm, I'm right there with them doing mm-hmm. it. You know, I, I'm not sitting in the, in the stands cheering them on. I'm, I'm right there with them and being like, yes, this is the next step is terrifying. Come on, mm-hmm. let's, you know, we can do this. And it's, it is a wonderful experience. You know, I, I tell people I, I work with trauma and grief and if they're not in this, in this field, if they're not a clinician, they always look at me like I'm a, some sort of like a, yeah. a, a sadist. They're like, yuck. <laughs> they're like, why? You know? And I, I tell them it's because the reason I particularly love working with grief is that at the center of it, it's all about love. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Don't grieve over people we don't care about, we don't love. Yeah. You know? um, even if it's somebody who's really wronged us, you know, like a, uh, an abusive parent or something like that. And it's like, you know, they really, really hurt me. Well, there's still some love there or else you wouldn't be right. feeling this confusion. You wouldn't be feeling this mm-hmm. way. Uh-huh. And so at the center, it's, a, it's all about love and, and caring for that other person, which is beautiful to me. And, you know, helping people get back to that and helping people acknowledge that it is both and, and it's a balancing act of pain and love uh, is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Alex, how do, how do people find you and what you're doing? Uh, let's see. The, the best way to find me is just probably the, my website, uh, bloom-recovery.com. Um, I'm also on social media, um, Facebook, Bloom Recovery, uh, and then Instagram, Bloom underscore uh, Recovery. Um, and so, yeah, those are probably the, the best ways. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This is a really um, enlightening conversation for me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's an honor. 
Thanks, Alex. At the end of this episode, we want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there is something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. You can share your story with us on our Facebook page, Healing Paths, Inc., or on our website, www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. At the end of another episode, we want to remind you that nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. And remember the prayer of the perfectionist. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time and that the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone, that I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.